Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'm speaking with Professor Lindsay Farmer about his new book, Making the Modern Criminal Law, Criminalization and Civil Order. Lindsay Farmer is a professor of law at the University of Glasgow. He has previously held teaching posts at the University of Strathclyde and at Birkbeck College, the University of London, and has spent a t- time as a visiting professor at the Centre for Law and Society and the University of California at Berkeley, this University of Toronto, Columbia University, New York, and the University of Sydney. He's written a number of renowned and influential books on criminal law, criminalization, and jurisprudence. He's recently been awarded a Leverhulme Trust Major Research Fellowship to work on a project titled Rethinking the Relationship Between Criminal Law and Markets. In 2019, he was elected as a Fellow of the British Academy. Today, I'm speaking with Lindsay about his latest book, Making the Modern Criminal Law, Criminalization and Civil Order, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Lindsay Farmer, welcome to the show. Hello, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to write Making the Modern Criminal Law, Criminalization and Civil Order? Okay, so... The, the, the immediate catalyst was a um, project that I was running with some colleagues um, at the universities of Stirling and Warwick uh, on criminalization, looking at theories of criminalization, sort of questions about what should be criminalized, when we should criminalize it, what should the, the proper role of the criminal law be. And as part of uh, my engagement in that project, I, I had undertaken to, to write a, a book. And thinking about the the question of criminalization, I started to think rather than just thinking about what the different theories were and how you might choose between one theory or another, uh, what were the conditions of possibility of a theory of criminalization? How would we even think of this as being a question that we would want to ask about? And that got me to thinking about uh, things like um, how do we think about uh, the object of criminal law? How do we think about criminal law as a, as a, a body of law which ha- applies to a certain area of social life? How do we think about the role of government in relation to uh, conduct and, and the place of criminal law in that? And opening up these larger questions or trying to address these larger questions was what I was trying to do uh, in the book. And that's really interesting. It certainly comes through in the book. Um, one of the key ideas you write about is this process of criminalization. Um, and you're concerned with who are the subjects of criminal law, as you just mentioned, and both in a general sense, um, and also who and what kinds of conduct are criminalized as part of the civilizing process. Can you expand on this a little bit? Yes, of um, course. The, the, um, my, my starting point was, was really asking, um, so, if we, if we think about what we want the criminal law to do, we have to think about who is the criminal law directed at? What sort of person is the subject of criminal law? What do we expect the, 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 the subject of criminal law to, to, to be able to do? What, sort of, what would they be able to respond to? And in thinking about this, um, we, you know, we have to think about that the criminal law is only one of a number of instruments, if you like, that, that government has. To, to regulate conduct. It can regulate conduct in, in different ways. So what's it doing when it uses the criminal law? Why? And the criminal law, because of its emphasis on the responsible subject, the person who, uh, who it has to, to choose, to intend to act in a certain way, uh, is, is envisaging a, a particular kind of subjectivity, a particular kind of response, the person who would respond to a certain kind of incentive structure. Um, and that might be different from the person who's the object of other kinds of regulation or other kinds of law. And so 
what I, one of the things I was trying to do was trying to think about the subject of the criminal law in that way. And the other big question, of course, was thinking about, well, what kind of areas of, of social life is, is it appropriate for criminal law to regulate? Now, a lot of theorizing about criminal law and criminalization just proceeds uh, on the basis of kind of a, sees this as a kind of abstract question that asks, should criminal law regulate, uh, you know, the interpersonal violence or the family or property? But if you look at this in a historical perspective, what you see is that this is not something that is given. It changes over time. If you look at the criminal law of 200 years ago, it was very different from the criminal law of 100 years ago or, or, or of today. And so what I was interested in was looking at the, the, the different ways that criminal law uh, evolved or changed and the way that it thought about its object, what it, what it thought it was trying to do. Um, and so I was trying to open up these questions and so that we don't see them as something that is natural or taken for granted, but is something that is contingent and that we have to reflect upon how the criminal law uh, is actually used. And in this sense, um, I think one of your key arguments to me seemed to be um, that a general aim, if not the general aim of the criminal law, is in securing social order. Um, that's, you know, how conduct is regulated and who whose conduct is regulated. So can you explain this idea of civil order in relation to um, the criminal law and how, how do you define it? Okay, so one of the things I was trying to do here was to... to to think about what is what is criminal law for. Now, if you look at a lot of the literature on criminal law, it, it, it says something like, you know, the aims of punishment, the aims of the criminal law are to punish, or the aims of the criminal law are to secure social peace or social order. And it seemed to me that those were very narrow or thin accounts. Um, why would we have a, a body of law whose sole aim was to punish? Uh, or if we're talking about the, the, the criminal law securing social peace, um, what, how would we secure social peace through punishment? Um, and so I what I was trying to do was to open out the kind of question of what are the functions of the criminal law in, in modern society. And it seemed to me that one way of thinking about this was to think about the broader range of things that criminal uh, roles that criminal law plays, and which can't just be reduced to punishing wrongdoing. Because all of us, are, every day, are in different ways, our conduct is structured by criminal law. Not only criminal law, other forms of law, other forms of government regulation as well. But we, our conduct is organized around uh, or by uh, different kinds of rules. Um, and one of the, so so that that was the the kind of the initial thought was trying to just open this out and try to say that. You know, we can think about the, 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 the functions of criminal law more broadly. The idea of civil order was trying to say, well, look, there's a difference between just, uh, if you like, peace as the absence of war or order as the absence of disorder and the idea that we might aspire to live in a civil society, a society where uh, we understand our relationships with each other, our obligations towards others, uh, that, and that, that criminal law, again, plays some sort of role in that idea of, of civility. And so that, that argument then had a, a, a sort of normative dimension and a historical dimension. So historically, I was trying to look at it and say, um, how has the criminal law uh, played a role in, if you like, civilizing conduct? Uh, and in using this idea, I was trying to place my work in the kind of context of uh, a, a sort of his, uh, so historical sociological arguments by people like Norbert Elias, who've talked about the, the civilizing process. And on the other hand, I was trying to say, well, look, there's a kind of normative aspiration here, so that we we uh, we want to orient our our conduct. When we use law, we're trying to treat people as civilized subjects. We're trying to pe treat people who are not just uh, pieces on a chessboard to be moved around or directed or regulated, but as as responsible subjects who respond to certain kinds of encouragement or stimulus. And 
So the choice to use law rather than any other uh, mode of government regulation, the choice to use criminal law, says something about the way uh, a commitment, a certain commitment to a certain idea of civil order. So I was trying to capture these, the way that these two ideas might uh, interact with each other. And picking up on that point um, you just made about criminal law being purposive in the sense of trying to secure peace over society, um, I want to turn to, in Chapter 2, you start with a great quote by Adam Ferguson. It says, We are not to expect that the laws of any country are to be framed as to many lessons of morality, to instruct the citizen how he may act the part of the virtuous man. Laws, whether civil or political, are expedients of policy to adjust the pretensions of parties and to secure the peace of society. Now, I'm wondering if you can explain this a little bit. Um, You've just talked about the normative and historical dimensions um, in relation to criminal law and regulation. Can you talk about how how it does secure peace over society and these pretensions of parties, perhaps, um, if you can talk more about the historical perspective as well, and if there's any sentiments that, you know, are still true for the present day. Okay, so, well, I mean, it, it's really interesting you you, you, you mentioned Adam Ferguson, uh, uh, and Adam Ferguson was, uh, for people who don't know him, one of the kind of philosopher historians of the um, Scottish Enlightenment. And one of the things I was trying to do in the book and, and through the idea of, of civil order was to locate or, 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 or try, uh, try and think about the history of criminal law from the kind of perspective of um, the Scottish Enlightenment. And the Scottish Enlightenment uh, is, was, is, is interesting because it was very concerned with sociality, how people live together. Uh, and um, it the and the kind of mechanisms that encourage or, or that uh, allow people to uh, not just live to, together in society, not just to coexist, but to to live together well. And so, this idea of civil society has its origins uh, in the work of somebody like uh, Adam Ferguson. Is now, is now a very kind of current idea. And so. It's not just a matter of what, what's important, I think, about the, 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 this kind of body of Scottish Enlightenment thought is when they think about civil society, they're not just thinking about society in terms of a relationship between the state and individuals. They're starting from the idea that we live together. And the question is, how might uh, the market or the state serve to help us live together uh, in, and to live together in a civil way. So it's starting with the idea of people in communities rather than starting with the idea of individuals. And that's a very important starting point for me in terms of thinking about uh, my own ideas. So then if we move on to the, the, the sort of second part of your question, what will be I- I examples of this? What I try to do throughout the book is, is look at different uh, different ways in which we can um, think about uh, how, the, if you like, the, the, the problems of how we live together. Now, a, a starting point is the, the transformation of modern society. Now, the major transformation of modern society was that between about 1750 and 1850, people moved largely out of small small uh, communities into cities. And the, the, the key problem in cities or the key question in cities, as well as the, the industrialization and everything that went with that, is you were living in, in, in communities of strangers. So between 1750 and 1850, um, the, 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 there's a, a, a sort of demographically, uh, the, the, it moved from the majority of the world's population living in small communities to the majority of the world's population living in cities. Um, and cities then presented a, a unique problem of order. How did you coexist with strangers? How did you live together with strangers, and not just in with a minimum of peace, but in order, you know, but to live together and not uh, without order breaking down all the time. And I think, for me, one of the ways of looking at the changing form of the criminal law in the period between uh, in the in the course of the nineteenth century is addressing what this 
kind of fundamental question. Government was trying to work out how uh, to lay down rules so that would enable people to live together in cities. How do you know, uh, how would you establish trust? How do you know who you can trust? So criminal law was regulating different aspects of social conduct. And this, you know, in everything from uh, how pedestrians might behave, one of the areas, again, one of the areas of the book, which I think is absent from most histories of, uh, of criminal law, is looking at what the impact that the development of the motor car had on um, social life. Because people uh, in motor cars, in cars, were suddenly uh, sealed off from other people, from pedestrians, from uh, other motorists. There were no initially there were no norms about how to signal which side of the road to drive on and so on and so all of these kind of problems of order had to be worked out and the criminal law was a, a mechanism by which this was done so it you know there is this kind of sense of criminal law as a, a sort of problem solving mechanism or being used to address these kind of problems of order and that that's really one of the things I was trying to to uncover. And I think that does come across where uh, you write about, um, you know, the relationship of trust of people not just living together in these newer cities but living together well. Um, and there's trust between these individuals but also um, trust in, with the state. So there's this relationship you describe between violence and trust um, and also there's a monopolization, monopolization through sorry, monopolization by the state over violence through the criminal law. I'm wondering if you can explain this a little more. Well, the, the idea of monopolization of violence is, is a kind of a key uh, idea that we find in a, in a lot of sociological work from, from, from sociologists like Max Weber uh, through to Norbert Elias, who I already mentioned, um, talking about um, the... the um, the, the the civilizing process. Now, um, for, for somebody like Elias, one you know one of his key questions is um, how is it that we move from you know a, a society where, in, if you like, in the in the seventeenth or eighteenth centuries, people were wearing swords, they were carrying daggers, that violence was widespread, uh, it was permissible for men to to beat their wives. Um, Children were regularly beaten. Uh, we we move from this this you know very violent uh, society towards a, a society where uh, violence is much less tolerated. Um, and so he's interested in not just uh, the the kind of external mechanisms, uh, how the the if you like how the state might regulate violence. But also the relationship between the the what what you might call internal mechanisms, how how we regulate ourselves, how we think about uh, our own sort of set of what are res appropriate responses to certain kinds of conduct or provocation, um, and so again you know trying to track this, I'm interested in a, in a, a similar uh, set of questions, looking specifically at criminal law. Um, and, and the role of, of, of criminal law. So in, if, in relation to something like violence, I'm not just interested in, uh, if you like, the, 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 the external questions, how the, the state uh, uses violence or monopolizes violence in certain ways and, and the different ways that it does that you know, through things like organized policing, punishment, uh, and so on. But I'm also interested in what they're trying to do to get people to think differently, to behave differently in certain uh, circumstances. And that is not done only through the criminal law, but it's certainly done partly through the criminal law. Uh, and, and, you know, the, this is, again, is a, is a sort of new set of questions that I'm trying to, to bring to the table to, 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 for, for, for criminal law theorists to think about. There isn't some given human nature the, 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 that the, the state is working on human nature, the state is working on people, it's assuming a certain kind of subjectivity. Um, I think that's really interesting, um, this sort of idea that there was this, you write about this civilising process through the criminal law and through criminal 
regulation and also criminalisation. Can you talk about the link perhaps between civilization and criminalization in this context? So uh, it's, I mean, there's a sort of um, rather bad academic pun here, obviously, you know, civil, the, the, civil, the relationship between civil and, and, and criminal. And, and obviously one of the things that, um, you know, the, 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 the questions um, for criminalization theory is the relationship between using, say, civil law uh, as forms of remedy and using criminal and criminal laws as forms of remedy. I'm trying to, again, expand this here by thinking about um, the, the criminalization and civilization. Now, what's important here is this This is not just a, like a, a zero-sum game. Uh, it's not that as, as civilization increases, uh, if you like, that criminalization would decrease, but that the... the um, our conceptions of what is or is not civilized also change over time. Uh, and so we have to think about um, how we think about civilization and how we think about um, what, uh, how appropriate it is to use criminal law in relation to uh, trying to, to, to civilize uh, people. Now, one of the arguments of the book is that, for example, during the 19th century, um, criminal law was used um, quite extensively as an instrument to try and civilize the conduct of uh, the working classes. The working classes were seen as immoral, uh, dissolute, uh, as violent, as uncivilized. And one of the kind of large governmental projects of the 19th and early 20th centuries was to civilize um, these these people, to, to bring them up to the standard of behavior that they could be responsible members of society. So they weren't seen as full members of society. They had to be educated and civilized uh, in, into that process. So here we can see the relationship between civilization and criminalization is one where the criminal law is being used often in quite a repressive way to try and civilize uh, people. We might think about that relationship differently. Uh, we might think about it, as I said, in a way of thinking about civilization as being a, a normative aim and, uh, and something we might aspire to, or we might limit the use of the criminal law. We might see ourselves as being more civilized if we use criminal law less. These are open questions. I'm not saying there's, there's a, a single relationship, but I think that thinking about this kind of relationship and the way that we think about civilization and the relationship of criminal law to civilization opens up a series of, of, of very interesting questions. Um, and so in this sense, you also write civilization sort of has a particular character of its own. Um, at the opening of the book, you write that civil order represents a kind of ideal or social imaginary of modern law where self-governing individuals are guided by general rules and interact in civil society and the market. Law and criminal law in particular plays a role in securing this civil order. A society is seen as rule-governed. Now, in this civilizing process, I'm wondering, especially you, you just mentioned in the 19th century and, for example, civilizing the conduct of the working classes, I'm wondering, can you explain exactly how the criminal law seeks to sort of secure this civil order and the civilizing um, of citizens? Okay, so so what, one of the, one of the um, key uh, moments for me in, in, in working out this project was uh, was reading John Stuart Mill uh, and his famous work on on liberty. Now, in, in work on in criminal law theory, John Stuart Mill and and the harm principle is often cited. And basically, the argument is um, it, it's seen as a kind of classic liberal argument. Um, John Stuart Mill, writing in in, in the the eighteen sixties, argued that. The only reason uh, for uh, that criminal law could be used was to prevent harm to others, and this has, if you like, been a, a kind of touchstone for a lot of recent um, criminal law theorizing. And I went back and I read this again. And what's very interesting about uh, the, this the essay on on liberty is, if you look at the full quote, is that Mill says that it. The, the 
his assumption was that a person would have to be civilized. So he's he's saying that only the civilized person uh, would uh, respond to this or, or, or be, would would have the liberty in this form. And so, the, it, you know, he, he's not what Mill, who's seen as the, the the kind of great liberal, was distinguishing between the civilized and the uncivilized. Civilized people could be free. Civilized people were entitled to liberty. Uncivilized people were not entitled to liberty. And I thought this was just really, really interesting. And then if, actually, if you, um, Mill is interesting because he actually wrote about civilization and he, he uh, uh, ideas of civilization. And Mill had a what we might now see as a kind of classic Victorian idea of, of civilization, which was that civilized people were... Uh, White people, uh, Indian people weren't civilized. That civilized people were people of a particular kind of class and background uh, that didn't include the working classes, and that th this this kind of liberal liberalism was conditional. And so, what I was interested in was, if you like, what what kind of assumptions structure some of this thought, and why don't we why don't we see some of these assumptions? Why do we explore some of these assumptions? So that in practical terms, then, we can then actually look at um, 19th century criminal law. And, and, and again, Mill is an interesting figure because he was he was uh, became a parliamentarian, that he was uh, involved in kind of writing and thinking about the, the criminal law. And we can see then if we look, if we take off the blinkers, I don't see him just as a kind of you know classic liberal. We can see that his uh, his idea of the criminal law was conditional. It was about educating people. It was about civilizing people, so that if you qualified, you could uh, you you were entitled to liberty. But if you if you if you didn't, if you were uncivilized, you wouldn't. Um, so that you know we, that we can see being played out numerous times in relation to things like alcohol, like prostitution, uh, like uh, laws against violence, and so on across the nineteenth century. And on this sort of assumption, you write um, about these sort of assumptions that do underpin this, like I would say, a liberal ideal of the criminal legal system. So, for example, you write about jurisdiction and codification and responsibility. Just picking up what you've said about um, John Stuart Mill and this concept of this kind of liberal individual that a certain individual has um, sort of agency in this criminal system, um, and focusing on responsibility, you write that responsibility is linked to a liberal view of criminal law, which sees the autonomous individual as the subject of the law. It is central to the justification of state punishment, and the law is understood as serving the overall end of protecting liberty of the individual sub subject. Can you explain this a little, little further, the modern liberal view of the criminal law, perhaps, and the notion of responsibility in this context? Okay, so so what I was interested in here was, was the idea of responsibility. Now, um, responsibility is, is seen as as, as a, a, a kind of key concept for contemporary criminal law theory. That uh, the the infliction of punishment would not be justified unless the the individual is responsible in the sense that they had chosen to commit certain wrongful acts. Um, and so if we look at this, we can see the idea of um, responsibility is then used to structure the criminal law in certain ways. So uh, it's then used uh, when we think about the definitions of particular crimes, we think about the relationship between the prohibited conduct and the necessary mental state. So if somebody performs a certain act but doesn't have the necessary intent or degree of recklessness, they wouldn't be regarded as responsible uh, for the purposes of the criminal law. Now, a key point here is that responsibility is often seen as limiting, so that um, one of the uh, points that, that's often used to criticize uh, developments in criminal law or historical criminal law is that it didn't recognize um, responsibility. Um, so things like strict liability or certain forms of um, 
uh, criminal offence are criticised because they don't recognise uh, responsibility in in the in the proper way. So criminal responsibility then is seen as as limiting, uh, and, and so at the heart of the criminal law, if you like, the criminal law's vision of itself is that is there's this commitment to responsibility and through that to an idea of liberty, to the free choosing uh, individual. What I try to show in the chapter on responsibility is that responsibility doesn't just play this negative role, limiting role, but responsibility also plays a positive role in that, that the criminal law makes certain forms of conduct responsible. It makes certain people responsible so that an example of this might be um, uh, throughout the, the, the course of the, the 19th century, uh, liability developed for different forms of reckless conduct. So prior to 1800, in order, for example, to be liable for someone's death, you had to have intended that person's death. Throughout the 19th century, the liability was expanded to include different forms of reckless uh, liability. So if you ought to have been aware of the risk that uh, somebody could be hurt or, or, or killed by your conduct. So what I, I'm trying to argue here is that this is actually an expansion of liability. Uh, this is that, that the responsibility as a concept doesn't just limit liability, but it also is used to impose or develop new forms of liability. It's about making people responsible. And this generally connects up with a larger argument in the sense that um, what I'm arguing is that uh, the criminal law was used to allocate or to distribute responsibility for certain social roles. In other words, if you are driving a car, if you are um, supplying um, food, if you are running a factory, then you have... Uh, certain kinds of responsibility given to you in the role that you're you're playing. Um, so what I was trying to look at was uh, to try and demonstrate that the development of the modern criminal law is not just a, a kind of attempt to use the concept of responsibility to limit uh, forms of liability, but actually that it is used to criminalize conduct uh, and to distribute li liability in certain ways. And I think possibly in part because of this or alongside this, there was a rise in subjective liability. Um, and, you know, there was change notions perhaps of who became the punishable subject. Can you explain this a little bit, this idea of subjective liability? So the idea of subjective liability is that a person should only be responsible for what they knew about or could foresee. And this is a, a, a kind of, you know, a, a key um, central part of the kind of modern ideas of mens rea, that it's unfair to impose liability on someone for what they could not have foreseen or could not have known. Um, so what I was interested in when talking about the idea of the punishable subject was, was to explore the connection uh, in modern criminal law theory between uh, this idea of subjective liability and the justifiability of punishment. It's justifiable to punish someone who's chosen to act uh, in a certain way. Um, and once again, it's, it's, this is, is, is conventionally seen as something that is limiting, so that uh, if we have subjective liability, it limits the idea, uh, limits the, 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 the scope of the criminal law. Um, but, and, and, and this, this is important to the idea of thinking about who can be regulated by criminal law. So when, you know, again, going back to something I mentioned earlier, uh, there might be different ways of regulating conduct. So we might do it, you know, you might, different kinds of regulation, different kinds of incentives that are given to, to people. When we choose to use the criminal law, we choose to use the criminal law because we think of uh, perhaps the, the, the kind of conduct as being sufficiently serious to warrant the intervention of the criminal law, but also that we're, uh, directing it at certain kind of people, people who can respond to certain kinds of uh, stimulus. So we wouldn't use the criminal law to regulate children's behavior, for example, because they're not seen as responsible or punishable subjects. So 
what one of the things I was trying to do is to kind of track this relationship between uh, the, who's who's seen as responsible and how are they seen as responsible and therefore um, punishable. And again, I'm trying to see this not as a kind of uh, abstract um, question, something that we we can see apart from different kind of social contexts, but we have to see it as how it's used in certain social contexts. Um, and that the decision to see somebody as responsible and, and therefore as punishable or not is a decision that is made by legislators, is made by governments. It is not something that is uh, simply a, a kind of philosophical question. And turning now to the sort of less ab abstract sort of parts of the book and where you really flesh out these kind of notions and how they've developed, you talk about um, three particular areas where, um, you know, civil order has been regulated and by the criminal law. So, for example, property, the person, and then also sex. So perhaps um, just taking into account what you've just said, talking about what's sufficiently serious um, in terms of being criminalised, um, most the most recent the modern example was sort of where you talked about wrote about sex and sex crimes um and i must say i was really shocked that it's only quite recently that sexual offenses have been recognized as a specific category of offenses so you write that only it was only in the 1970s that sexual offenses began to change from being a descriptive grouping to something that reflected an underlying underlying organizing principle um Thinking about how it is legislators who make the decision, as you just said, about what will be criminalised, can you explain a, a little bit about what happened before the 1970s? How were sexual offences criminalised and why they came to be newly organised in this way in the 70s? Okay, so this is, this is this I think, is really a, a, an interesting point, an interesting question. Um, so the... It's, so what I'm trying to argue here is 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 that there are there is if we look at the the the, the history of the criminal law we can see that actually there's a there is a, a much longer history of sexual conduct being regulated by criminal law so I'm not suggesting that sexual conduct wasn't regulated by criminal law um, so you know the, we can trace the the, the crime of rape um, back into to the earliest times. Uh, uh, and so on, but what I and, and also I, in, in that chapter I look at uh, offences around prostitution, around homosexuality, uh, and such like. Um, so, so let me you know pick out a couple of things from this. One of the points I'm trying to make is that if we look at something uh, like rape, uh, this, this to me is, is 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 a very interesting example because very often criminal law theorists will say. We can't imagine a society, you know, without laws of rape. So there must be something. You know, there are fundamental, certain fundamental wrongs. Um, but the point I want to try and make here is to say that while we might conceive of rape uh, uh, we, we, uh, as a as a wrong, the the way that we conceive of something like rape as a wrong changes over time. So in the Middle Ages, rape was a wrong because the woman was the man's property, and rape of a marriageable woman was devaluing the property of the man. In the over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, rape was conceived then as a crime of violence, so that uh, that uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't thought of in terms of non-consent. It was a form of violence, and so that if the if the the rape wasn't associated with uh, forms other other forms of physical violence against the, the 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 victim. It wouldn't be seen as properly a rape. Only very recently, from the 1970s onwards, we begin to think of rape as a non-consensual sex. So that the the if it, the, the way we think of the crime changes over time. But also, obviously, at the same time, that means that we, the scope of the crime is very different. If we only think of the, the crime as being capable of being committed against marriageable women, against women who are in the custody of their, their father, it's going to be a very narrow crime. If it's only a crime of violence, it's going to be wider than the property crime, but 
conceived of differently. We think of it as a crime against uh, consent or sexual autonomy, then we're going to think of the crime in very different ways. So one of the things I'm trying to do here is, is to track this difference um, and to make the point that how, you know, it, it, it's, it's very problematic to make claims to say, you know, murder is always a crime or rape is always a crime because it doesn't tell us the whole story. So that's one of the things I'm doing. Sorry, go on. Sorry, no, sorry, go on. So I was going to say that that's one of the things I'm doing in in, in the chapter. The other thing that I'm doing in that chapter is saying, well, what was really interesting about uh, the the early uh, criminal law was rape was seen as a crime, um, prostitution was seen as a crime, but something like prostitution was seen as a crime against public order, not as a crime involving sex or a, a sex crime. Um, whereas over the course of the, the, the 19th century and, and through the, and up to the, 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 the time you mentioned from the, the 1950s um, onwards, people began to talk about an idea of sexual offences. And what that meant in criminal law terms was it was grouping together um, things like um, uh, rape, um, sexual offences against children, uh, incest, prostitution, homosexuality, under a, a single head of sexual offences. And when people started putting them together, rather than seeing them as, as kind of separate offences, they started to think about what do these have in common? Um, what is the organising principle for this? And then, as, you, as you've mentioned, one of the surprising things is, you know, this was a, a very recent um, development. Um, but then from the 1970s onwards, as people began thinking about the, the organizing principles, they start to think about the idea of um, sexual autonomy as being a kind of organizing principle, that uh, the, what these offenses have in common is that they interfere with our capacity to choose who to have sex with and when to have um, sex with them. So when you put this idea of autonomy... Uh, at the centre of it, again, it seems like a very liberalising sort of move, and we and that's this is key to the the for example reforms in in um, the in England and Wales and Scotland in, in the Sexual Offences Acts. All right, but in fact, what I try and show also is that this also at the same time becomes an illiberal move because the the idea about sexual autonomy comes along with ideas about who doesn't have autonomy. Who, who's not able to choose? So the people who aren't able to choose are children, are vulnerable people, uh, and so on. And as that category expands, what looks like a liberal move, recognizing autonomy, also becomes a very regulative move, dis- distinguishing between who doesn't have autonomy, uh, who has autonomy, and who doesn't, and criminalizing uh, conduct where people are deemed not to have the, the autonomy. So it's what I'm trying to show is it's, it's very much a double-edged sword. Uh, that that you know what looks like a liberal move is not all you know has to be looked at more closely. And so then I guess my next question is: is what does this kind of like both liberal and illiberal move and this new system of categorization? What does it tell us about the changes in the civil order? So again, that's a, it's a very interesting question. So. I mean, what, what the one way of thinking about it is, is saying, what kind of world do we imagine when we, you know, if, if, we, if we read the Sexual Offences Act, what kind of world is it, is it imagining? It's imagining a world where um, people are free to engage in certain sexual uh, forms of sexual conduct. Now, what's interesting about this is, is if you compare it to, say, the 1950s, it's liberal. It's saying it's not saying. Whereas in you know in the 1950s, uh, forms of certain forms of sexual conduct were criminalised, notably homosexuality, uh, other forms of con- sexual conduct as well. Um, now the, the the criminal law is is saying that's not the version of civilization. That's not the version of civil order that we, we that that we, we we think of. This version of civil order is one where. We're not imposing a certain idea of heteronormative um, sexual conduct as, as being the norm. You can do what you want, all right? But you can do what you want so long as you are not 
exploitative as long as you are not uh, you know taking advantage of vulnerable people in some way so the idea of civilization or civil order changes um, it's it you know in some ways it, it looks like a, a, a kind of free-for-all but it's also operates as I say on the it, it's not necessarily it you know what look might look like a decriminalization and and often you know, histories of sexual offenses in this area see the kind of the, the path from the sexual revolution of the 1960s to the present day as being a, a, a kind of decriminalization process. All right. But what I'm trying to argue is that the, the, the decriminalization is also a recriminalization because certain forms of conduct that are, are seen as, a, as exploitative, as abusive, uh, and so on are, are are criminalized. So our our idea of civilization or civil order here is of something that's vulnerable, um, that people can be exploited, and that the criminal law has to. It's seen as unproblematic for the criminal law to intervene uh, to pr- protect the people who who need to be exploited. So the the point here is I'm I'm not trying to make an argument at this point about whether that's right or wrong. I'm just trying to expose the logic to trying to um, show the development that we can't just focus on the the kind of the the decriminalization the liberalization argument but we have to think about you know what that is going hand in hand with and i think you make the same argument to really um you know drawing together you make the same sort of argument in relation to property offenses um where we can understand you know how civilizing the civilizing process um, has been influenced through criminalization through property offenses so I'm wondering if you can explain please Lindsay how the, how have changes in property law been influenced by changes in the underlying social functions of property and their link to trust and civil order okay so I mean, that's a, a big question but yeah very <laughs> very very broadly speaking what, what what I try and argue is look one of the, the big changes, uh, in the criminal law is that um, in relation to property offences is is the, the the changing nature of property so uh, and the the changing social relations so for example the the, the um, when the the most of the the kind of modern criminal ideas about modern criminal law property offences were formed in the in the late 18th and early 19th century um, then property, most property was physical objects um, that uh, most people were dealing with each other on kind of, you know, on, on a, dealing with people they knew on personal, on the basis of kind of personal relationships. And so you see that the, the, the criminal law, when it's intervening, is trying to, mainly to deal with, you know, the idea of theft, taking from possession. Um, but the, the Dealing with the fact that um, you know, the pe- people knew each other, so the, the problems it was trying to deal with were, you know, the, the untrustworthy servant, or um, the, the if you gave goods to uh, somebody to deliver for you, if they ran off with the goods, um, and so on. But over the course of the nineteenth century, we move into a very different world where um, property circulates much more wi- widely. Um, so. A couple of examples of this might be uh, that uh, the nature of shopping changes, the, the nature of consumerism changes, so that department stores uh, develop, stores where you would go into the store, you can pick up goods and put them down again, um, you can try things on, you can, uh, uh, people wear more visible, you know, people, people wear clothes, not just, uh, they have different uh, Many different outfits, uh, as opposed to you know a single set of clothes. Um, in the commercial world, people are dealing uh, in larger organisations. You have to trust more people in your organisation. Property is circulating between different kind of um, suppliers and merchants, and so on. So the problem is how to how to um, decide who you can trust, where criminal law should be used, and how to respond to the changes in, in the form of property. So one of the things I've tried to, 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 to show is the way that 
in fact, we can look at the development of property law and we see that it's it's trying to problem solve, if you like. It's always it's trying to respond to these different kind of situations and try and say, well, look, um, certain kinds of uh, relationships will be regarded as matters for civil law. Um, you know, if you employ someone, if you um, have car rental uh, or agreements, for example, uh, and uh, the person breaches that, then your remedy is civil. Uh, in other kinds of relationships, the criminal law should be used, and that. Um, but these these are about you know the criminal law, the the, the the government deciding about how to distribute responsibility, how to distribute trust across society. And so I think also, again, um, looking at when criminal law is felt to be legitimate to intervene in, you know, day-to-day life and the private sphere of individuals, you say it's also changed in, t- in relation to crimes against the person and especially in relation to violence. Um, so can you explain some of these changes in relation to what has felt to be legitimate violence and how this has changed over time? So... You know, what, one of the arguments here is is, is the kind of civilizing process argument, which is is saying, you know, broadly speaking, the the state has um, regulated interpersonal violence, so that the the um, again one of the, the 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 real curiosities for me when I was doing the historical research for this was that uh, in fact assault was not widely prosecuted as a criminal offence in the uh, late 18th or the early 19th um, centuries, it was seen as a civil wrong. So that if somebody assaulted you, uh, it was, you know, it, it, to get a remedy, you would have to sue them in the, the, the civil courts. Um, only the most serious forms of interpersonal violence were subject to criminal law. So maiming someone, uh, carrying out serious uh, uh, assault on, on someone. So one of the big changes is that Gradually, over the course of the 19th century, the state starts to police, to regulate different forms of interpersonal violence. So assault becomes much more prominent as part of the criminal law. And part of this is responding to the fact that organized police forces and so on were actually uh, breaking up fights, arresting people who got into fights, trying to uh, intervene. Um, But also, over the course of the 19th century, things like uh, what was at the time known as wife beating uh, were gradually uh, were, were criminalized and the state began to take a more active role in in, in trying to protect uh, women and children. So we have on the one hand this kind of broad uh, move, the state you know trying to uh, intervene to make people less violent, um, if you like, and more civil uh, to each other. However, what I also want to argue here is that our understanding of violence changes. So that if we look at the early 19th century criminal law, violence was seen as direct interpersonal violence. So striking someone, uh, you you know, using some sort of weapon against them, something that drew blood. More recently, what we've seen is this idea of violence uh, expanding as well, so that Violence is seen not just as forms of direct interpersonal violence, but also forms of abuse. So one of the kind of key um, developments in, in, in recent law in, in the UK, uh, which is also driven by kind of international um, conventions on violence against women, is uh, are things like uh, criminalizing forms of coercive control. Now, coercive control is seen as a form of violence, but it seems a form of violence which might involve direct interpersonal violence, but is, uh, uh, encompasses a lot of other forms of abuse, uh, gendered uh, uh, abuse, um, controlling someone's conduct, and, you know, who they can see, what, what they can do, and so on. This is seen as violence. So it's the, the conception of violence is changing as well. So again, we see this is a kind of double-edged process. On the one hand, um, you can say, yes, we are becoming less violent. Uh, the, the criminal law is regulating this conduct. And it looks like, a, 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 if you like, a, a sort of liberalizing um, move. It's protecting people. But the protection comes at the cost of 
a more interventionist criminal law where people are seen as vulnerable uh, and in need of uh, and in need of protection. So it's the the civilization process is is not just a kind of unqualified good. It's again to be weighed against these these kind of uh, new developments uh, in the criminalization of certain forms of conduct. And so then now, I think just bringing all these points together, can you perhaps sum up a little bit, how does criminalisation secure civil order? So, I mean, in, in part, it's, a, if you like, a, a, a sort of um, historical question. So what, I, what, I would, what I've been trying to do in the book is just to, um, to raise questions about the way that we think about these these things um so i want uh you know in in a in a in one way i want criminal law theory to engage more deeply with these questions of the social function of the criminal law the way the criminal law is used how it changes over time and not to proceed on the basis of what seem to me often rather simplistic assumptions about the say the meaning of autonomy or responsibility or violence or, or whatever it is. So at one level I'm trying to say, you know, this is, um, these are complex questions that we need to reflect on them more deeply and we need to draw on a wider set of uh, resources than just um, philosophy in order to understand them. Um, I was also going to say here, it's that, um, what I what I'm trying to do is is there's there's also a tendency among certain criminal law theorists to say you know something is the right answer that you know if we if we think about you know a particular problem we can come up with what the law ought to be and I, what I'm trying to say is we can't do that this is these questions are, are more complex uh, we have to understand them in in that kind of broader sense but they're also political questions we all, we also have to understand that it is not not questions for philosophers to decide or that we can say there will always be these limits, but that we have to uh, decide as particular political communities what we want the law to be, what our understanding of an appropriate kind of civil order is. And so I'm just trying to open up our understanding of these kind of questions. And I think that really comes through in the book. It is really interesting how you do cause the reader to question these sort of underlying assumptions that I think are otherwise just sort of accepted um, without question. And you open the door for further research, for asking these hard questions, which you say are not just for theorists, but also they're political as well. Um, and so it was really it was really interesting. Um, now, Lindsay, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, can you please share with me what you're working on next? Okay, so what I'm working on uh, in some ways develops out of the making the modern criminal law um, project, I'm looking at um, how criminal law thinks about the market, how criminal law regulates commercial or market um, relationships. Um, and this is, uh, in part, it was something that might have been included in, in the book is, is thinking about what might be kind of market offences. Um, it, it, why, why does the, the criminal law see the market as, as something that's self-regulating? Uh, that, that it's wrong for criminal law to intervene. But also because I wanted to engage with something that's uh, quite contemporary um, in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. Obviously, one of the things that we encounter is evidence of criminal misconduct by uh, traders and um, bankers uh, and so on. Uh, and often we encounter calls to, you know, saying that, they should be sent to jail. They should be punished for what they did, uh, and so on. One of the one of the strange things is that criminal law theory has not really thought about this area uh, at all. There's very little reflection on the market, uh, financial markets, uh, and so on. It's not seen as sort of something that's normatively engaging for criminal law theory, which tends to focus on more traditional offences. So, what one of the things I wanted to do was to try and open up this area as well to reflect on these kind of questions um, to think about when, if ever, we should be using uh, the criminal law to, to regulate market conduct. 
that certainly sounds like very interesting um, and exciting work and something that will have like very wide ranging significance um, for both criminal lawyers and, you know, economists, politicians. So I'll certainly look forward to reading that. Um, Thank you. <laughs> oh, I will. I'll, hopefully we can have you on again to speak. Um, once again, I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking with Professor Lindsay Farmer about his latest book, Making the Modern Criminal Law, Criminalisation and Civil Order. It's certainly essential reading for all scholars of criminal law and criminal theory. Lindsay Farmer, thank you for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network.